Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For today's show, I have five brand new movies to review for you. I think probably four of them are technically brand new because they're less than a week old, and the other one is a bit more than a week old as of the date that I am doing this show, and I'm going to get to that one last. But the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Bullet Train. This is the latest action comedy starring Brad Pitt and a very impressive roster of supporting talent along with him. Brad Pitt plays an assassin who has to deal with enemies while riding a Japanese bullet train. And a Japanese bullet train is, in essence, a very efficient train that they have not only in Japan, but all over Southeast Asia. And this is the train that a lot of major American cities, especially New York, wish they had. Now, granted, New York City has a a relatively competent uh, metro system, but the trains are getting noticeably old, although they're in much better shape than they were in the 70s, as is uh, seen in the movie The Warriors, uh, which was made in 1979. But anyway, About Bullet Train is directed by David Leitch. His last name is spelled L-E-I-T-C-H, so I'm just going to say Leitch. That's the best pronunciation with which I can come up. He had previously co-directed the original John Wick movie starring Keanu Reeves, which came out in 2014. He also directed the underrated Atomic Blonde starring Charlize Theron. He directed Deadpool 2, which was an improvement over the original Deadpool. And before Bullet Train, the other feature film he had directed was Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. And yeah, I'm a bit of a movie snob, but I pretty much skip the Fast and Furious movies because to me, they're pretty much all the same. But Bullet Train, to its credit, is a semi-original movie. It's not technically original, actually. It's, believe it or not, even though it might seem that the, the plot is relatively basic, it is actually based on a book called Maria Beetle, which was published in English as Bullet Train by Kotaro Isaka. And it actually came as a big surprise to me that this movie was based on a book because I can't imagine anybody sitting down and reading a book like this. But the description of the movie on IMDb tells you that five assassins aboard a fast-moving bullet train and find out their missions have something in common. And that's actually misleading because there are a bunch of characters who are assassins on this on this train and only a few of whom are actually Japanese, but there is the form, the former assassin who is the primary character in this movie is an assassin whose code name is ladybug. And we never find out his real name. He is the assassin who's played by Brad Pitt and he turn he returns to work from where this movie never really explains, but you can imagine it's some sort of retreat, but he, he returns to work with a newly positive attitude. And this this role actually would have been great for Owen Wilson, but when you have Brad Pitt in the lead role, I don't think you could necessarily complain. But he is tasked by his handler, Maria Beadle, whose voice we hear throughout most of the movie, and she makes an appearance at the end. 
A little bit of a spoiler alert, but not too much, I promise. Maria Beadle is played by Sandra Bullock. And Maria Beadle instructs Ladybug to collect a briefcase aboard a bullet train that happens to be traveling from Tokyo to Kyoto. After her normal contact, Carver, is forced to call out due to illness. Unbeknownst to Ladybug, there are three other killers on board. There are Hitman brothers, and I and obviously they are adopted brothers. Their names are Tangerine and Lemon. And like Ladybug, you never find out their um, real names. But unlike Ladybug, you find out a bit more of a backstory to them. Tangerine is played by Aaron Taylor Johnson, and Lemon is played by Brian Tyree Henry. Now, they refer to each other as brothers throughout the movie, but since these are not household names, just to give you an idea of how ironic it is that they'd call each other brothers, Aaron Taylor Johnson is white and Brian Tyree Henry is black. And there's also another assassin who is a deceptively innocent schoolgirl who is known as The Prince, not The Princess, The Prince, and she is played by Joey King. It is kind of ironic that her name would be The Prince, not just because of the gender thing, but also because Joey King was in a pretty decent action film that came out a couple of weeks ago and is still on Hulu called The Princess. But... Here in this movie, we're used to seeing, or at least American audiences are used to seeing Joey King, Aaron Taylor Johnson, and Brian Tyree Henry in movies where they play Americans and therefore have American accents. And the three of them are in this film in their native British accents. And I think Brian Tyree Henry is probably the best actor of the three of them, but I think all of them, I guess their acting performances significantly improve or seem to improve based on other things in which I've seen them when they have their British accents. Or at least it's it's somewhat refreshing to hear them in their original accents. So the MacGuffin, if you will, is this briefcase and what's in it kind of like Pulp Fiction. It doesn't really matter what's in it. What matters is that they're after it and they will do anything just to get it. And there are also some very interesting uh, cameos in this film, as well as some other actors in the movie who make all too brief appearances. They are given on-screen credit, but unfortunately, they're only in this movie for a couple of minutes. I did mention that Sandra Bullock is only in this movie for a few minutes, and I would have liked to have seen more of her. Another such actor, or actress, I should say, is Zazie Beetz, who makes an all-too-brief appearance, but her appearance is very memorable as well. So Bullet Train is a movie that is a bit mindless, but it's one of those films where you go to the movies, you see it, and you sort of leave your brain by the door because the, the only really motivating force behind what happens in this movie is that that briefcase. And as the action progresses, the train gets faster and there are so many snafus that go on here. The movie becomes very outlandish, cartoonish, and very unrealistic, especially considering that there's one part where a train crashes and Brad Pitt does not have a seatbelt on and he's standing up. And yet, a little bit of a spoiler alert, he does survive the crash. I mean, it's not too much of a spoiler, I, I suppose, because when you have Brad Pitt as the lead in an action film, you 
pretty much can presume that he's going to be alive by the end. There hasn't been a director who has killed his character off yet, but the best parts of this movie are when the assassins are fighting over the briefcase and when they use their very own unique methods in terms of not only assassination, but also their take on life that interacts, that intersects into some of these action sequences, especially when Joey King had uh, Joey King's character has that babe in the woods routine down to a T and she does it so well that I think probably even the hardest criminal could potentially believe her. And many of them do. I also really liked Brian Tyree Henry, uh, his character Lemon, not only because he's a bit more of the comic relief of this film, but also because he has this character uh, or characterization where he learns to read people based on characters from Thomas the Tank Engine, and he also carries with him Thomas the Tank Engine stickers. I don't know if that was in the book. I somehow doubt it, but... Brian Tyree Henry made it work. So there are things about this movie that work, things that don't. Towards the end, the movie becomes, as I said, very outlandish and unrealistic. But I do give it a very high checkout because this is one of those films very much like Top Gun Maverick. It's got to be seen on the big screen. And if you do see it on the big screen, maybe you do have to leave your brain by the door. But... At least it's a lot of fun to watch, and I think that just about every actor in this movie gives it their all. I think Joey King and Brian Tyree Henry are the standout actors in this film. There were some others that made all too brief appearances. In fact, there's one cameo of an American on the train who I won't give away, but this guy sells his cameo when he's on screen, and this, and this cameo I, I won't give away. There's another even more brief cameo that's more of a flashback that was not particularly impressive, especially compared to the roster of talent who is credited. But Bullet Train is fun. It's just not intellectually stimulating. But if you're looking for something that's not intellectually stimulating and fun, Bullet Train, I suppose, is your go-to movie. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Easter Sunday, which, yes, came out on August 5th. Why it didn't come out in March or April, either of last year or of this coming year, I don't exactly know. But if you really think about it, there are some seasonal films that come out um, at times where you wouldn't expect it to come out, either they're in the wrong season or they're in a season you wouldn't expect. A primary example of this is the, the original Exorcist from 1973. Even though that seems like a movie that would come out best during Halloween, and it's seen a lot of times at Halloween or people see it at Halloween, it actually originally came out just a couple of weeks before Christmas. Another example is the 1993 movie Hocus Pocus. It takes place on Halloween night, 1993, but it actually came out in late July of 1993. 
And that was a really big mistake on Disney's part because when it came out in late July of 1993, it was a commercial failure. It was a critical failure too, but it was a commercial failure because a lot of people didn't expect to see a movie like that in the summer. So will this help or hurt Easter Sunday? I don't exactly know, but it is set around a family gathering, a Filipino family gathering, I should add, to celebrate Easter Sunday. And the comedy is based on Joe Coy's life experience and stand-up comedy. The director of this movie is Jay Chandrasekhar, who also makes an appearance in this film as Joe Coy's character's agent. And he has many uh, funny scenes as well. Jay uh, Chandrasekhar is actually a veteran comic actor as well as director. He's with the Broken Lizard uh, comedy troupe. He directed a bunch of their movies, including Puddle Cruiser, Super Troopers, and several others. So he's no stranger to directing comedies, but other than him, there are no other Broken Lizard troupe members in this movie. And Joe Coy plays a character who is very much based on himself, and it's very easy to see that. His character's name in the movie is Joe Valencia, but it's obvious he plays a guy who is half white, half Filipino, and has a very close-knit, albeit semi-dysfunctional, Filipino family, including his mother, uh, Susan, who's played by Lydia Gaston, who is a very uh, unique character. And I would name a bunch of the other characters, but that would probably take me quite a bit of time. But he has a son, uh, Joe Valencia does, whose name is Junior, and he's played by Brandon Wardell, who, like Joe Coy, is also of some Filipino descent. And he is bringing his son along with him for this Easter Sunday day, basically, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with his Filipino family. And the best parts of this movie are when Joe Coy, who has been doing stand-up comedy for 30 years, actually does his stand-up comedy. As a matter of fact, there's one part where he does his stand-up comedy routine in, of all places, a church. And Joe Coy, I don't, I I gotta be honest with you, even though he has been doing stand-up comedy for almost 30 years... I actually have not, I wasn't familiar with his comedy, but I appreciated a bunch of things about him when he did stand-up comedy in this movie. One, that his comedy was clean, and two, it was funny. And even when he was doing his stand-up comedy routine in a church, where you wouldn't expect to, especially a Catholic church, where you wouldn't expect to see somebody doing stand-up comedy, he was really relatable, really funny, and that was probably the parts of the movie that shined. And as a matter of fact, I thought that Easter Sunday worked best when it was dealing with Joe Valencia or Joe Coy and his Filipino family. And certainly, very much like my big fat Greek wedding, his family was tight-knit, semi-dysfunctional, and there was also some very unique characters within his family. I think probably the most memorable are, as I said, his mother, Susan played by Lydia Gaston, as well as his aunt, uh, Tita Teresa, who's played by Tia Carrere, who I actually didn't realize was part Filipino. When I 
went into this film or when I saw her. I always presumed she was Chinese, especially based on the character she played in Wayne's World, who was actually from China. But Tia Carrere, who I might also say um, looks still looks damn good, even after you know thirty years uh, thirty years after the Wayne's World films. But on top of that, Tia Carrere was born and raised in Hawaii, and she is actually part Chinese, part Filipina. But I, I think upon seeing this film, I completely forgot about their nationality just because the dynamic of all the family members here works really well. There is a subplot where Joe has a younger brother named Eugene, who's played by Eugene Cordera, who buys a, a food truck and gets into trouble with a, a certain mob in San Francisco when he steals something from them, which is actually something that's very valuable to the Filipino American community. I thought that's when the film got a little too over the top in a bad way. And I do think that I wasn't really laughing at a lot of those parts, not because I was offended or whatever, but because I really didn't think that kind of violent subplot was necessary in this film. And those were probably the parts where I laughed the least, but Joe Coy's stand-up comedy, as well as the dynamic of his on-screen Filipino family, I thought were the best selling points of this movie, which is why I give Easter Sunday my rating of a checkout. I think that Joe Coy is not only a very talented comic actor, but he is a decent actor and also a very funny stand-up comedian. And what's more, the, the best part about this film is he's very likable. But the problem with this movie was the obvious studio interference when they inserted that part of the bad guys with guns into this film and how he they're able to find his Filipino family towards the end with one of the climaxes. I didn't exactly know, but I enjoyed this movie more than I had problems with it. Even though it's not even close to Easter, it's too far from the last Easter and, and not close enough to the next Easter, I still think Easter Sunday is worth a look. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Prey. Prey is spelled P-R-E-Y as in the opposite of predator, not how you communicate with God. And this is a movie that is directed by Dan Trachtenberg. And Jan, uh, excuse me, Dan Trachtenberg has had extensive movie experience over the last few decades, but of the feature films that he has directed. He's actually only directed one before this, and that was the movie 10 Cloverfield Lane, which was more of a spin-off of the 2008 movie Cloverfield than it was a sequel, but it was also made 12 years after the original Cloverfield movie. That's a movie that starred Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and John Goodman. And 10 Cloverfield Lane had some problems, but John Goodman, who I wouldn't consider a scary guy, was actually very scary in 10 Cloverfield Lane. 
So Dan Trachtenberg is here with his first movie in six years, and it is the origin story of The Predator. And when I say The Predator, I mean the creature that has been in several movies, most notably the movie in the late 80s with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And here in this movie, The Predator is coming to Earth um, about 300 years ago and is in the world of the Comanche Nation. And the movie centers not so much on the Predator as much as a skilled female warrior by the name of Naru, who is played by a Native American actress by the name of Amber Midthunter. And she fights to protect her tribe against one of the first highly evolved Predators to land on Earth. And as I was watching this film, the movie doesn't exactly introduce you to the Predator at first. As a matter of fact, because I didn't see any previews for Prey, I did not know that this was a sequel or a prequel to the Predator movies. But the movie starts out, as you might expect if you've seen movies like The Remnant or The Last of the Mohicans, it starts right in the woods where Naru, Amber Midthunder's character, is trying to hunt. And she is very skilled with a hatchet. As a matter of fact, I was behind this character 100%. But as the movie progresses and you learn more about her hunting skills, her ambitions, as well as the relationship between her and the people in her tribe, I really wish the movie would have stayed on that. Instead, once the spaceship came in and the Predator made, I presume, his appearance, because you never know the sex or the gender of the Predator, I began to think this movie could have just stayed a movie about Native Americans 300 years ago and not about an Indian who is, or an indigenous person who is trying to survive against an alien. I grant you it is a unique premise for a movie, but I probably would have liked it if another kind of alien, you know, for example, one we haven't seen before, came down to Earth. And also, why did the predator come, this alien being, come down to obviously a very esoteric and a primitive earth. What was he trying to do? Was he just trying to go around and kill whatever he could find? Was he trying to find some sort of life source? The movie never really doesn't tell to its credit, but it also doesn't show. But I do, I don't want to, write this movie off entirely because first of all, there are very few films out there already about indigenous people. And I would imagine that any indigenous person who's going to watch this is going to love this and probably a lot more than dances with wolves because the indigenous people are aside from the predator, the only people in, well, actually, excuse me. They're, they're the only major characters. There are actually some, minor characters who are French um, fur trappers, which made me presume that this movie was set in Quebec as opposed to anywhere in the continental United States. But it apparently the tribe in this movie is the Comanche tribe, but I'm not sure exactly how 
accurate that is either. No one actually tells you in this film that it's the Comanche tribe. They don't say their name. I only know that from the description. It could basically be any Native American tribe in North America, but the Comanche tribe might not be accurate because they are more of the Southern Plains and have headquarters today in Lawton, Oklahoma. So I presumed that these Native Americans were native to Quebec as opposed to somewhere in Nebraska or Oklahoma or even Texas. But that's really not the point. The point is that the movie could have been just about these native hunters in the early 1800s or late 1700s, basically in woods or a part of North America that hadn't been inhabited by the new settlers yet. And I think it would have been great to see that, but I do think the science fiction part of it, especially bringing the predator back might have offset the movie and made it a bit more imbalanced. But I did enjoy the performance of Amber mid thunder as well as all the other uh, human actors in this film as well. I just wasn't really crazy about the alien, which is why I give Prey my rating of a checkout. I think that if you want to see it for the indigenous actors, regardless of who you are, you won't be disappointed. But the science fiction elements were disappointing, particularly because the Predator was just underdeveloped. And he doesn't have to have a personality other than being a killer to make an interesting movie, but it does have to have some sort of motive. And I just didn't think his character was all that necessary. If they had actually just stuck to the characters that were indigenous, I think it would have made a still very interesting film, perhaps arguably an even greater film. But I liked those parts. Didn't particularly like the science fiction elements. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next limited miniseries that I'm going to review for you is called Trainwreck, Woodstock 99. Now, I believe this movie was originally called Cluster F, Woodstock 99, which is a more appropriate title than Trainwreck. And yeah... Obviously, Woodstock 99, having literally gone down in flames, could be a train wreck in the metaphorical sense, particularly when you realize that you want to look away, but you can't, as the cliche saying goes. But one of the drawbacks of the movie being called Trainwreck is 
it's just, as I said, it's one of those cliched sayings. It, it was like a train wreck. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. And also there could have been a more original way to describe Woodstock 99 as it was Woodstock 69. The first Woodstock obviously needs no introduction to just about anybody in the world, except for the people who don't have TVs, but Woodstock 1969 promised peace and music. And even though it was not a perfect show, it basically delivered that. And we all know what happened with Woodstock 99. So one of the other things about this movie train wreck Woodstock 99 is I've told you before, I review movies on this show. I don't review TV shows. However, miniseries, especially limited miniseries, are fair game. And considering that I had immediate access to Trainwreck Woodstock 99 since I have a Netflix account, I put this on my list of movies that I absolutely had to see for this show. Interestingly enough, HBO put on a... a, documentary that was of the exact same event. It was called Woodstock 99 Peace, Love, and Rage, which had a better title. Is it a better documentary than Trainwreck Woodstock 99? That's really hard to say because I think one of the things that I really admired about Trainwreck Woodstock 99 was it was a three-part miniseries whose total is two hours, 22 minutes, But like the HBO documentary about Woodstock 99, I couldn't stop watching it. And there were some people who were interviewed for both documentaries, but mainly I think there were more people interviewed for Trainwreck Woodstock 99 than there was for Woodstock 99 Peace, Love, and Rage. But it's good to get different sides of the story. But a lot of it, I think I had seen before, especially the controversies involving when Limp Bizkit played and also when there was the really, really bad decision to give people candles for a candlelight or an intended candlelight vigil at the end of the Red Hot Chili Peppers set. What I think that Trainwreck Woodstock 99 does actually better than the HBO documentary is that it actually gives you a better hypothesis of why Woodstock 99 failed. And it wasn't really the fault of any of the acts that they booked, especially Korn, Limp Bizkit, or any of the other really angry rock groups that were seeing increasing popularity during the summer of 1999. And I remember this very well because I wasn't at Woodstock 99 and thank God I wasn't because that was a mess. And I'm not just talking about the bonfires that happened at the very end. I'm talking about everything that led up to that. The $4 bottles of water, which is still an outrageous price, even in 2022. There was also the latrines that were overflowing and basically Woodstock not only didn't rock, it also smelled. And I think this movie actually demonstrated better and probably made heroes out of some of the people who were either there to have a good time or were working like the people at MTV, because the people at MTV, including Ananda Lewis, who was an MTV VJ back then, and now she's actually retired from broadcasting, which, which is too bad. Cause she was a very talented broadcaster, but she 
um, reflected as well as there was another MTV producer here um, whose name was Tim Healy. They said as soon as they had their sign off, they got in their cars and they drove away. And there was something very poignant that Kurt Loder said on tape in this documentary that A, didn't make the HBO documentary, and B, to my knowledge, it didn't air on MTV. Kurt Loder said as they were leaving in the middle of the um, Red Hot Chili Peppers he- headliner, they, he said, goodbye and good riddance, quote unquote. And yeah, Kurt Loder is, I think for those people who grew up in the 80s and 90s, kind of like MTV's answer to Walter Cronkite or Edward R. Murrow. He was a lot more straight-laced than a lot of the other people on MTV, but what I really admired about him was he was straight-laced, but he was also cool. In addition to that, he gave a lot of entertainment news, but also like Walter Cronkite, when people needed to hear a a certain... uh, a certain somebody say something opinionated, he kind of took off his journalist hat and just told it like it was. And those five words, goodbye and good riddance, not only echoes Edward R. Murrow's good night and good luck, but it also really echoes what Woodstock 99 could have been and ultimately what it became. And when you see the archive footage of some of the graffiti that people put up, especially one that was called end profit stock that probably told you volumes of what went wrong with Woodstock 99, which didn't, which did not go wrong with Woodstock 69. And also there were some parts that I think the, the documentary missed. For example, there's an extensive of all the people who are interviewed extensively. And there are people who work behind the scenes, people at MTV that I've just mentioned, Tim Healy and Ananda Lewis But there was also one person who not only coordinated Woodstock 99, he also was one of the four people who founded the original Woodstock in 1969, and that was Michael Lang. And Michael Lang is depicted here as both a victim as well as somebody who probably had rose-colored glasses on as the festival was getting underway. He was backstage a lot as he was during the original Woodstock, but I think he was a bit more privileged in this, um, Woodstock 99 than he was in 69, because as the behind the music episode of Woodstock tells you, which was made or which aired shortly after Woodstock 99, the four promoters of, of the original Woodstock were, were, so convinced that they would go bankrupt by the end of the original Woodstock because the Woods, the original Woodstock was supposed to be a paid concert, but they gave up and made it a free concert. And so they were in the backstage latrines throwing up. If it hadn't been for them selling the film rights to Warner brothers and getting a share of the Woodstock documentary profits, they, uh, they would have gone bankrupt. And it just kind of amazes me that Michael Lang seems to have forgotten that part of um, the putting together the original Woodstock, how he could have gone bankrupt. But here, he seems to be a bit oblivious to what went wrong in Woodstock 99. But also, you could kind of tell from his perspective his probably um, muddled uh, viewpoint. 
But you also feel bad for him by the end because Woodstock did not deserve to go out on the note that it ultimately did. There has not been a Woodstock concert since Woodstock 99. There was actually one that Michael Lang was planning that was going to be in 2019 and had a whole three-day lineup um, that was planned, but it was ultimately brought down from three days to one day before it was canceled altogether. And maybe there's going to be another Woodstock. I don't exactly know, but this movie, I think, actually gives you an answer to what went wrong with the original Woodstock. And it didn't exactly come down to the people who attended or necessarily the musical acts, but rest assured they didn't help. But there was probably a bigger problem with the people who promoted the event, especially John Cher, who is interviewed for this movie, but he is probably set up as the villain in a way that he probably didn't intend when being interviewed for the movie. And it's kind of no wonder because the, the other people in the film who were, who were interviewed, who were working the, the show either in security or in site management, they basically tell you what went wrong and they tell you that there were corners that were cut. And once this movie extra- elaborates upon what what corners were cut and why, you could definitely tell whose fault it was by the end. But as I said before, there was also the price gouging, the <laughs> putting candles in the wrong people's hands, and also the violent music was just a match that lit the whole thing on fire. I guess the downfall to Woodstock 99, especially how it began on that Friday as the concert was underway, was building up to that point. And I think a lot of people in the concert, or the people who were putting it together, were not particularly surprised, but the people who were in charge were. And you could see how that would happen basically. So I'm not saying that Trainwreck Woodstock 99 is a better documentary necessarily than Woodstock 99 Peace, Love and Rage. It is longer and therefore gives you a better account of what went wrong. In fact, I think I probably had a clearer picture of what went wrong in in Woodstock 99 from the Netflix documentary than I did the HBO documentary, which is why I give Trainwreck Woodstock 99 my rating of a marginal knockout. The reason it's marginal is because it could have chosen a better title than Trainwreck. And also, the aftermath of the concert, I think, could have been another part of the series. But as the great, late, great Roger Ebert says, no great movie is ever long enough and no terrible movie is ever short enough. This movie could have benefited from a fourth part, but I did enjoy it for what it was, although I feel really bad for the people who put on Woodstock 99 with the best of intentions.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Fire of Love. And Fire of Love is a National Geographic documentary that is directed by Sarah Dosa. And Sarah Dosa's had a lot of experience producing in terms of documentaries that she's done. She's done one called Last Season, another that was a TV movie documentary that was called Remastered, Tricky Dick and the Man in Black, which I actually have seen. It's on Netflix, and it's about the relationship between Richard Nixon and Johnny Cash, which is highly recommended viewing, especially if you're in Nashville like I am. And the other documentary she directed was The Seer and the Unseen. So I'm familiar with some of her work, just not all of it. But Fire of Love is, as I said, a documentary about two volcanologists, and those are people who study volcanoes, as you might imagine, but they their names are Katia and Maurice Kraft, and they were a married couple who loved two things, each other and volcanoes. For two decades, the daring French volcanologist couple were seduced by the thrill and danger of this elemental love triangle. They roamed the planet, chasing eruptions and their aftermath, and documenting documenting their discoveries in stunning photographs and breathtaking film to share with an increasingly curious public in media appearances and lecture tours. Now, the couple, Katia and Maurice Kraft, are not alive anymore. That's not a huge spoiler. It would be a spoiler if I told you how they died. But considering their love for volcanoes, you could probably extrapolate how they could have died without seeing this documentary. But I still recommend it because it they left behind amazing archive footage. As a matter of fact, the footage that Saradosa includes in this documentary that is um, of Mount St. Helens is unlike probably anything you've ever seen before, including possibly on the news. I wasn't alive when Mount St. Helens erupted, but what's really scary is that Mount St. Helens could erupt again, and scientists and volcanologists say that it probably will. But to see it erupt in this movie, and it doesn't erupt with lava, it erupts with smoke, but it but make no mistake about it, this eruption was probably 10 times as dangerous as any atomic bomb that was dropped on any area. And the movie is directed, uh, excuse me, I, I said it was directed by Sarah Dosa. It's narrated by Miranda July, who is an actress who's not a household name, but you've probably seen her before. And she actually connects with this movie very well. I'm not sure if she has any connection to scientists or a volcanologist, but it's almost like she really knows Katia and Mari's craft, even though they literally don't speak the same language, either linguistically or in terms of their love of volcanoes. But the archive footage that Katia and Mari's craft left behind is amazing. Not just their volcanic footage, but also the footage of them actually doing their work without being near a volcano. In fact, there's something very poignant that Maurice Kraft says as he's in his office shifting some photos and some notes around. He said, 
that he has a better understanding for volcanoes, I'm paraphrasing here, than he does human beings. And this is actually nearly quoting what he says. He says, and I quote, if I could eat rocks, I would live on or near a volcano, end quote. That's probably not exactly a quote, but it's, it's very close. He does mention that if he could eat rocks, he could live on a volcano. And that's pretty amazing. And it's very admirable for somebody who would basically live in isolation just to do what they love. I guess it's, it's sad from one perspective, but I admire these people for doing what they love and also finding each other, which is why Fire of Love is an unconventional love story, but it's also very appealing. And it gets my rating of a knockout. It is a fantastic documentary that I would love to see nominated for Best Documentary later on uh, during Oscar season. But even if it doesn't, I think that people who see this movie, whether they are into science or not, or into volcanoes and plate tectonics or not, will honestly fall in love with Katya and Maurice Kraft. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to see this movie as a dramatic film later on. And unlike other documentaries where they've had feature films that have capitalized upon the success of documentaries, I think a feature film wouldn't necessarily capitalize upon the success of this documentary, but it would probably delve more into Katia and Maurice Kraft's relationship. And I would love to see that as long as it's not exploitative. on film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters. And if I have time on streaming for the week of August 8th through August 12th, 2022. And I'm going to start and possibly finish with movies that are subject to being released in theaters for this coming week. And I'm going to start with an Indian film that is set to be released in theaters on August 11th, 2022, at least in the Western Hemisphere. And it's called Lal Singh Chada, which is obviously an Indian movie because I recognize some of those names. But, oh my God, I can't believe this. This is an official remake of of the 1994 American film Forrest Gump. This is an Indian remake of Forrest Gump. And normally, not because I'm xenophobic, but because there are so many Indian or Bollywood films that come out, I kind of have to see this. I I, I don't know. I mean, you shouldn't remake great movies, but I guess Bollywood or Indian filmmakers might have a pass on this, but... I would just want to see this to see whether or not it is a good film or not, because it is very risky remaking such a film. And the clip that I can see of Lal Singh Chada is of a man who is sitting on a train, picking up a feather that landed on his feet. 
yep, this this movie is unabashedly a remake of Forrest Gump. Will I see it? I don't know, but if it's out in a theater near me, I might see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But here are the movies that are made in the Western Hemisphere, at least as far as I know, that will be coming out in a theater near you this coming August 12th, 2022. The first movie, which is probably going to be the biggest movie of next week, is is called Fall. And this is a film where best friends Becky and Hunter find themselves at the top of a 2,000-foot radio tower. The part of me that is deathly afraid of heights thinks to myself, why the hell would you be stuck on a radio tower that is 2,000 feet above the ground? Now, I haven't seen any previews for this because I actively avoid previews, but the poster for this movie, which shows them at the top of a radio tower and the ground looking way too far down, just makes my palms sweat as it is. So the movie stars Grace Caroline Curry as Becky, Virginia Gardner as Hunter, because Hunter in this movie is a woman, and it also co-stars Jeffrey Dean Morgan who I really like as an actor. I've seen him in several movies and TV shows, and he is usually very good, whether he's a hero or a villain. He's equally good in both. But Fall is a movie that I will see, even though I'm afraid of heights, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on August 12th is a movie that's called Emily the Criminal. Now, this is a movie that I know is going to be playing not necessarily at my local multiplex, but at the Belcourt Theater, which is the only independent theater here in Nashville. And because it's the only independent theater, I love it to death. I love the movies that they show there. But this is a movie that debuted at Sundance, and it's about a woman named Emily who, down on her luck and saddled with debt, gets involved in a credit card scam that puts her into the criminal underworld of Los Angeles, ultimately leading to deadly consequences. The actress who plays Emily in this film is Aubrey Plaza. And Aubrey Plaza has been in a few other dramas, even though she's probably better known for being in comedies. But she was in a movie that I guess was a dark comedy, but it had a lot of drama to it. It was called Ingrid Goes West, where she played a social media addict who was obsessed with an influencer. And that was a very good movie. That was a movie that came out five years ago and was very underrated. So Aubrey Plaza has some dramatic acting talent, and I'm very eager as well as interested to see this film, which looks even darker than Ingrid Goes West. And I will let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show, but chances are I probably will see it. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on August 12th is a movie that's called Mac and Rita. That's uh, two people's names. This is a movie that stars Diane Keaton, who to her credit will not stop working. And I give her full credit for that. But in this movie, uh, there actually the central character is a 30 year old writer who's played by Elizabeth Lale, who spends a wild weekend in Palm Springs, Florida and wakes up to find she has magically transformed into her 70 year old self. And her 70 year old self is played by Diane Keaton. Hmm. This would be interesting because this is Diane Keaton playing someone she has never played before, which is somebody who is Generation Z. The movie also co-stars Taylor Page, who I really like, and uh, Loretta Devine, amongst other people. Simon Rex, who's also 
uh, demonstrated some surprising dramatic chops when he was in the movie Red Rocket last year, is also co-starring in this movie. And even though it sounds like a very dumb premise, almost kind of like big, except not uh, the Tom Hanks movie, except probably not as good, it actually sounds like a, a pretty interesting premise, and it's got a very stellar roster of supporting talent. So I'll see this movie, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters the weekend of August 12th is a movie that's called Summering. And this is a movie about four girls who, the weekend before middle school begins, during their last days of summer and childhood, struggle with the harsh truths of growing up and embark on a mysterious adventure. The cast in this movie includes Leah Barnett, Sine Victoria, Madeline Mills, and Eden Grace Redfield. And I'm looking for actors who are adults who I might know because those four are children and I don't know their repertoire if they even have one. But there are some actors who I do know in this film, including Lake Bell, Sarah Cooper, and Megan Mullally, amongst other people. I don't know if this movie is going to come to a theater near me. If it does, I'll see it if I have time and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The final film that I'm going to cover that is subject to being released in theaters on August 12th is a movie that's called Girl Picture. And Girl Picture is a foreign film with the original title Tai Tot, Tai Tot, Tai Tot. I don't know what that means. I don't know what language it is. But it's about three also adolescent girls, Mimi, Emma, and Ronco, who are at the cusp of womanhood, who try to draw their their own coutures. In three consecutive Fridays... Two of them experience the earth-moving effects of falling in love, while the third goes on a quest to find something she's never experienced before, pleasure. This could either be a raucous comedy or a very, very sad drama. I don't know, but it's definitely delved into areas of adolescence that a lot of independent films, especially those made in the 90s, have done before. And some of those films, like Larry Clark's Kids, Makes my skin crawl even when I think about them. But they're still important films. So I don't know if Girl Picture is going to be coming out in a theater near me next weekend. But it looks like an interesting film and one that I might see. If I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.